Before we get into our passage this morning, I have an important announcement to share with all of you. Okay, three weeks from today, November 17th, we'll be having our annual meeting here in Danville. All right, it begins at 5 p.m., and I want to encourage all of you to consider coming out. And if you're a member, I want to implore you and exhort you to come out. But there's three important things that I need to tell you today in preparation for that meeting. So at that meeting, one of the things that our members are going to do is going to vote for our leadership nominees. We're going to vote on the 2020 budget, and we're also going to vote on a couple of constitutional changes. So what I need to let you know today is that the leadership brochures, the information of the people that your elders have put forward is going to be in the lobby. It was there at the beginning of the service, but also at the end of service on your way out, we should have a 2020 budget handout. So please take those, look those over and prepare yourself. The constitutional changes gets a little complicated because our constitution's thick. All right, so those are actually on the website. If you go to the annual meeting event on the event tab, you can look for it there. Or if you just go to the homepage, there'll be a banner that'll take you to those. So if you're a member, please look those over and please be ready to vote on those things at the annual meeting. Now, if you're not a member, I want to still highly encourage you to attend the annual meeting because it's a great opportunity to learn more about Harmony Bible Church. And it's a great opportunity to, to fellowship, to worship through some music, as well as fellowship and worship through the eating of delicious food. All of that to say, I hope to see all of you in a few weeks. All right, let's get into God's word this morning. So I've been looking forward to this passage today for some time. I think it's a a passage this morning and really throughout all of 1 John that has some very important and key truth for all of us. Some truth that as a country and honestly as a Christian culture across America, we desperately need to sink into our hearts. Now, many of you know here at Harmony, our mission statement is to bring glory to God by being disciples and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that that mission is really our compass. As elders and as staff, we, we think through that, we pray through that as we're seeking the Lord's direction and his leading. And our passage this morning actually has a lot to say about a particular part of that mission statement. But if I'm honest, I think the half of the mission statement that sometimes we easily overlook. You know, one of the things I truly love about Harmony Bible Church is we really sink our teeth into making disciples. In fact, Harmony's been making disciples for probably twice the length that I've been alive. And praise God for his work in and through this church. You know, recently we've planted campuses in Burlington and Fort Madison to make disciples We have field staff spread out throughout the world, throughout the globe, seeking to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's awesome. It's something that we should. It's something that we will continue to celebrate. It's something we should and will continue to pursue. We very much want to make disciples. In the midst of making disciples, though, I think sometimes, at least for me, it's easy to lose sight of being a disciple. You see, we want to make disciples, but first and foremost, we must be disciples of Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning in 1 John is pointing and urging us to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, we can have assurance that our lives are in Christ. 
You know, I think the, the church across America in many ways has lost the meaning of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. As one of your pastors, I confess, this is actually uh, one of the things that I think about and pray about the most for our church. You see, across our country, there is a Christianity where how we live, what we say, who we are, doesn't seem to matter. There's a Christianity that says, as long as I pray to prayer once, maybe I go to church sometimes, and as long as I intellectually believe in Jesus, then I have this golden ticket to heaven and everything's just fine. A Christianity that doesn't care about the actual truth in God's word. We can just kind of pick and choose what we like in the Bible. A Christianity that says as long as part of my life, well, well not that part, is in Jesus, then I'm just fine. You see, the problem is none of these Christianities are a picture of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. None of them are a picture of what God's word says about God's people. Now, now please hear what I actually mean. I am in no way saying that you have to live a certain way, obtain a certain level of morality, know a certain amount of the Bible in order to be saved. That in no way represents the Bible. Romans 10.9 actually tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what 1 John is going to tell us over and over, and specifically our passage this morning, is that if Romans 10.9 is true in our lives, that if we really do believe in our heart that God raised Christ from the dead, that he is our Lord and our Savior then our lives will reflect that truth as we are being transformed day by day more into the image of Christ. We will be disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's go to our passage this morning. Please open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. should be on page 803 in the provided Bibles. Read along with me. 1 John Chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Before we jump in, please pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning as we just sang, Lord, that yet not I, but through Christ in me. Lord, would you use your word this morning to transform my heart and the hearts of everyone in this room? Lord, it is uh, your voice, your word that we need to hear this morning. Lord, we pray and we trust that, Lord, you will use it for our sanctification and for our growth, for your glory. In your name, amen. Now, if you remember from last week, Pastor Chris shared some of the kind of historical context of what John is likely addressing throughout this letter you see, there were people in the church across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, that they, they'd latched on to these heretical beliefs. 
They were teaching things that were not true about the gospel, not true about Jesus, not true concerning our life in Christ. And in our passage this morning, John is addressing a number of those false beliefs. But John is doing this not just to to rebuke, not just to correct these lies and false beliefs, but also to encourage those who hold on to the truth, who hold on to the gospel. The, The gospel that John and others have shared with this church and they've believed in. And by holding on to it and living in light of their faith, they might know that they have eternal life. John is countering these false teachings But ultimately, he's writing for the purpose that we can see in 1 John 5 through 13 that we looked at last week. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now today I want to break our passage of 1 John down into three parts. Verse 5, the proclamation. Verse 6, 8, and 10, the refutation of And verse 7 and 9, the remediation. I know those are big words, so I had them put in the bulletin for you, all right? The proclamation, the refutation, and the remediation. So let's begin first with the proclamation. And and as we jump into that, I actually want to start back in verse 1 and read verses 1 through 4. Read along with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life that the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that to you, to many, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You know, that, that whole first section is just building But it's almost like John never gets to this thing that they have heard, that they proclaimed, so that we might have fellowship with also. You see, John is building to a very important point. John is building to the first verse of our passage this morning, where he finally makes the proclamation. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, I don't know about you, but with all that building up in verses 1 through 4, I was expecting a a little bit clearer, maybe a more concise gospel proclamation. Something like, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, came down and lived a perfect life. He died for your sins, and on the third day he rose again. Now he's seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Or maybe something like, this is the message we have heard from you and proclaimed to you that Jesus became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But instead, John builds to this proclamation, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You see, before John begins to address the false beliefs, the lies that have been propagated, he proclaims a foundational truth about God. You know, anytime we see a passage of Scripture that starts with God is, it's a good opportunity to pause and really pay attention because we're about to read a specific insight into who God is. And, and, and what we know and what we think about God is pretty important. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, 
He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I like this quote, but it needs a little tweak. All right, so, so C.S. Lewis actually argues a little bit with this quote, and he says, the, the most important thing about us is actually what God thinks about us. And I agree with him. It's an excellent point, as who God says we are is what's most important. However, it still matters, and it's still important what we think about God. So I'm going to make a little adjustment Let's try this for the quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God are the most important thoughts we have. Now, I don't know if I'm allowed to do that, but I just did. Because what comes into our minds when we think about God are the most important thoughts that we have. What we think about God is extremely important. Because, you see, as we grow in the knowledge of who God is... By God's grace, that truth can sink into our hearts, which leads us to praise and worship Him. Leads us to live a life that is focused on God, abiding in Him and living for Him. So let's consider now what God's Word is telling us about Him in this verse. God is light, and there is no darkness in Him at all. So God is light. What, what does that mean? God is a collection of photons within the visible portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, and he travels really, really fast, because you know the speed of light's really fast. You know, I don't think that's what John means in this verse. I don't know how much they knew about photons back then. And probably more obviously, and likely what all of you were thinking when I said that was, well, John, the USS Enterprise, the Millennium Falcon, they both travel faster than the speed of light. And although those ships are really fast, and albeit make-believe, they certainly can't be faster than God. And the Flash. Thank you. You know, I don't think that's what John's talking about. So what, what does John actually mean? You see, context is important, and context, the immediate context in our passage, actually points to what John is trying to tell us. You see, if you skim through our whole little passage this morning, you're going to see some themes that kind of pop out. You're going to see this theme of light and darkness, this theme of truth versus lies, this theme of sin versus cleansing. You see, John is essentially setting for up for us two categories, one associated with light and one associated with darkness. And these categories are important because one of them is associated with God and fellowship with one another in Christ. And the other is associated with darkness and thus no fellowship in Christ. You see, so the light is connected to, to truth and to purity, while the darkness is connected to lies and sin. See, John is really telling us about God's character, something we might call, he's given us a, a glimpse, a part of the doctrine of God. By saying God is light and in him is no darkness at all, John is pointing out two fundamental things about who God is from our passage. First, that God is truth, which means he never lies and he has no falsehood in him at all. It means his word is true, his promises are true. God is truth itself. 
Another way to think of this is that there is nothing perfectly true apart from God. Because you see, God defines what is true. He is the standard of truth. God is light. Thus God is truth. And second, he's telling us that God is pure. Which means he has no evil, no sin in him. In fact, he's the opposite of sin and unrighteousness. John actually uses a a double negative in regard to darkness to make sure that we don't have any doubt that God is light, that he has no darkness, none at all. God is pure. It means he's righteous, he's holy, he is morally perfect. In fact, he defines what is right. He defines the perfect moral standard. Now think about light and darkness with me for a minute. You know, in most cases, we need light to really know about something. For example, if, if, if all of you have never been in this auditorium before in your entire life, and I, and I brought you in, I placed you in a seat, and it was utterly pitch black, and you've never been in here before, you're going to have a really hard time telling me much about this room. You won't know how big it is, how big the stage is, you won't know the color of the carpet, the color of the pews. I'm still not sure what the color of the carpet is. You wouldn't know the shape and the size of the room. But once I turned the lights on, the, the details of this room would be revealed. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a pitch black room in essentially total darkness, but I have, and it's a bit disorienting. You see, when I was younger, I went to Germany, and I lived there for a chunk of the summer with my parents. Now, in Germany, maybe some of you know this, they have these special blinds, these special shutters called Rolladens. And Rolladens are actually built into the walls or in between the panes, and they have this interlocking blind system, and they can fully close. They block out any light coming in or going out of the house. They literally look like blast shields for your window. So if you can imagine in the movies, right, a bomb's coming, a missile's coming, the the blast doors roll up, and all of a sudden these blast shields come down and cover the windows. That is a picture of what Roladens are like. Anyway, so it's my, my first night in Germany. I'm with my parents. And I get to my room in a nice house. I have a I have a healthy amount of jet lag. And eventually I go to bed. Now, before any of you judge me, this is, this is in an era before everybody had a cell phone right next to their, their bed that they could just grab, okay? And when I went to bed, you see like a, a hall light, a bathroom light, something was on. So it wasn't that dark, but the Reladins were closed. And I had no idea what was about to happen to me. So sometime in the middle of the night, probably between 1, 3 a.m., I wake up and all the lights are off, which again is normally okay because you get some nice moonlight, some, some outside light, but not with the Reladins closed. The blast shields are down. It is pitch black. I'm in a house that I've only spent an hour or two in before I went to bed. I'm jet lagged, and it is pitch black. There's only darkness. Now, I literally thought something was wrong with me, something didn't go right. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these experiences, but if you wake up and something happened to you, you think something went wrong and you're in utter darkness... It's not a great feeling. I was hoping for light. I literally put my hand about one inch in front of my face. And no exaggeration, I could not see it. 
It was dark. In that room, there was no light, none at all. So for the next 15 minutes, I'm crawling along the floor. I'm feeling all over the walls desperately trying to find the light. Remember, this isn't a house I've been in. And you know they build things differently in different parts of the world, so the light switch isn't where I think it should be. I am blindly just feeling around the room, desperately searching for something to sign some light. And I won't lie, I was a little freaked out. I wasn't as brave as I am now. And finally, if my memory suits me, I found a flashlight in a drawer. Because apparently other people know it's really dark, so they put flashlights in the drawer right next to the bed. And I flipped the flashlight on, and boom, all of a sudden, praise God, I can see. You know, it was like one of those God said, let there be light moments, and boom, there was light. Now, it may not have been that dramatic, but for me as an eighth grader, it was a pretty big deal. And all of a sudden, the, the details of the room, the, the setup, the light switch location, and everything I had been trying to figure out for the last 15 minutes was right in front of me. You see, the light brought out the truth in the room. The light brought out the truth of the situation I was in. The light revealed the truth and saved me from the darkness. It didn't even just help me see, it helped me get up and walk to the light switch. And you see, brothers and sisters, God is light. He is true and perfectly pure. And just like when I flipped that flashlight on and my eyes could see when God works and transforms hearts, when people are born again by grace through faith, he opens their eyes to the truth and the beauty of who he is. He's the God that calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He is the great light that shows all of mankind, all of the world, what is true the essence of truth, what is moral, what is right, the essence of perfect goodness is God. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This proclamation is the the truth. It's the foundation for John's coming arguments against the false teachers. John takes his stand on the truth of who God is and who God reveals himself to be through Jesus Christ. He takes his stand on the gospel. So let's move on to his refutation, where where John argues that what they had heard from these false teachers was, in fact, contrary to the truth, and thus contrary to who God is. This refutation can be found uh, in verses 6, 8, and 10. Each of those verses begins with, if we say. So let's look at those together, starting in verse 6. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now these are some pretty strong words from John. And if you notice, they're all things that are contrary, they're opposite of what we learned about God. These are all claims that in reality point to darkness, not to light. As John is writing these things so that believers might know that they have eternal life, John is warning that if any of these things reflect your life, then you may not have eternal life. 
You may not be in the light, but in reality are in darkness. John's providing some, some litmus tests to our faith. If you remember from last week, Chris introduced three tests borrowed from John Stott that we're going to see throughout 1 John. These three tests are the moral test, a test of obedience, the social test, a test of love, and a doctrinal test, a test of truth. You see in our text today, in the refutations found in these three verses, we're going to primarily see two of these tests emphasized. The moral test, a test of obedience, and the doctrinal test, a test of truth. These tests essentially ask, are you living in obedience to God? Are you walking in the light? And do you speak truth? Is God's word your truth? Let's look at each of these briefly. First, the test of obedience, the moral test. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Let me word this a little bit differently. If we claim that we have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, yet we continue to live a life of darkness, a life enslaved to sin, pursuing sin, pursuing the things of this world, instead of pursuing truth and purity, then John's telling us we lie, and we do not practice the truth. I want to make this very clear again this morning. The the moral test is self-reflection on your obedience to God in no way has anything to do with earning your salvation. It's not about earning your ticket into heaven. Instead, it's a test for us to consider so that for those who do believe, those who are walking in the light might know and have assurance that they have eternal life. And it's a warning if you're not. You see, John is pointing out some of the issues he has with the false teachers teachings in this refutation. That is, if you claim to be a believer, if you claim you are in Christ, yet you are living a life full of sin and slave to sin, then the reality is you are likely walking in darkness and the light is not in you. You see, John's test of obedience for these false teachers indicates the opposite of what they're claiming. They lie and do not practice the truth. John is making a clear connection here that if you are a believer, if you have fellowship with God, then you will not walk in darkness. You will not be enslaved to sin. But instead, you'll pursue light. You'll pursue truth. You'll pursue purity. You're going to fight sin and grow in Christ-likeness. Now, we're going to look at this in more detail, but John isn't telling believers to just try harder and walk better. And he isn't saying that every time you sin, you should question your walk with the Lord. He makes that very clear, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But what John would urge you to, if you find yourself struggling with this obedience test, he's calling us to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. John is arguing that claiming faith in Christ while remaining in darkness is not an indication of saving faith. However, obedience to God's word is an indication of saving faith. It's an indication of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the second test here, the test of truth, the doctrinal test. We're going to look at these verses together, verses 8 and verses 10. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves 
and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John is pointing out more issues with the claims of these false teachers. They're claims of essentially sinlessness. One in the present tense, we have no sin, and one in the past tense, we have not sinned. Now, many or most commentators think these are essentially saying the same thing, and others think they're saying something slightly different. In either case, I want to focus in on the consequences or the reality that these claims to sinlessness are, that we deceive ourselves, that we make him a liar. Now, I haven't run into anyone claiming this recently, but these claims to have no sin can be connected with what's called Christian perfectionism. So the concept here is that after conversion, after coming to know God and receiving the Holy Spirit, then the believer stops sinning. Now, believe it or not, when I was in college, I ran into some street preachers that actually claimed this very thing. Directly to my face, one of them told me that they don't sin anymore. In fact, they let me know that it had been many, many years since they sinned. And they also let me know that I was a sinner, which I am. And you know what I asked them about? Our passage this morning. I said, the Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. You see, God knows that each and every one of us sins. And he knows that we will continue, even as believers, to struggle with sin. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need Jesus every day. That's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves of what Christ did on the cross. You see, when it comes to our sins, the question is, the the test is, do we deceive ourselves? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb this morning, and I'm going to assume that none of you directly claim to have no sin. If you do, I'd really love to talk to you after the service. But I know for me, I like to think that maybe, and maybe even claim that I have a little bit less sin than I really do. Now, I don't know about you, maybe this is just me again, but I'm really good at rationalizing my sin to the point that not only what I did was maybe not sinful, but but I was right. You know, I have six wonderful kids, but when I get upset or frustrated with them, and I should say sinfully upset and sinfully frustrated, I have every excuse, every rationalization in the book ready to throw on that table. You see, when I throw out excuses, when I throw out rationalizations of my sin, I am only deceiving myself. Brothers and sisters, are you deceiving yourselves by rationalizing or ignoring sin? Now, in verse 10, you see John's going to up the consequence. Instead of just deceiving ourselves, it says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Who is him? He's talking about God. We make God a liar if we say we have not sinned and his word is not in us. God's word makes it crystal clear that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Claiming to have not sinned contradicts the very truth of God's word and that claim is making him a liar. Now now the worst part though is It it, it actually denies the need for a Savior. 
You see, Jesus came to save sinners. So if we claim to have not sinned, we don't need Jesus. We don't have a problem and thus no gospel. Now again, I know you may be thinking, well, certainly that isn't any of us here. We all know that we've sinned. We know we need a Savior. And I'm glad you feel that way. But you see, Ecclesiastes 1.9 reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun. And claims from thousands of years ago tend to come back around, just packaged in a nice and different box. Consider our current cultural direction. Our culture currently says, my truth is my truth. Don't tell me I'm wrong. No one has the right to tell me what's right and wrong. See, our culture essentially claims there isn't truth. There isn't a moral standard. And if that's the case, then there isn't sin. And no one needs a savior. Our culture's claims deceive themselves and make God a liar. And you know, I wish this only occurred outside of those claiming to be Christians. But as I mentioned earlier, the church has lost the understanding of being a disciple in a lot of ways. You see, so much of the church across our country claims, don't, don't talk about sin. Let's just pick and choose the things that, that make us feel good in God's word. You know, sin's just a little too harsh to talk about on Sunday. If we just help people feel good about themselves, everything is going to be okay. You see, the truth is everything won't be okay. We need to know we sin. We need to know we need a Savior. We need to know how far short we fall. You see, we need to know the bad news so that we might humbly cry out to God for help, cry out for salvation, cry out for the good news of Jesus Christ who came and died for our sins so that we might have eternal life. You see, knowing the bad news makes the good news that much sweeter. It makes the light of Christ shine in the darkness. Knowing we sin helps us cling to the gospel and continue to strive to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So we have the proclamation that God is light, the, the refutation. So this morning, let's finish with the remediation. Verses 7 and 9 contain the remediation to these false teachings. Read with me. It says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have two verses with two applications for us to consider this morning. But, but don't miss it. There's still just one remediation. One remediation from sin. The blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. You see, even as John presses us to examine our lives, examine our faith and obedience to God, we cannot lose sight of the gospel. We cannot move on from the beauty of the second half of these two verses. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love how in the midst of rebuking these false teachers, John encourages the believers 
with the truth that forgiveness can only be found in Jesus Christ. You see, the remediation from all sins, all of the lies, all of the lack of truth, the lack of obedience is the blood of Christ. Do not lose sight of the gospel. Jesus is the remediation. Jesus is our redeemer. Now, in these two verses, John provides us with some practical application, though, to, to, to respond to these false teachers, some practical application of what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. You see, he gives us two things to help ground us in that proclamation, that truth. Two things that demonstrate a fruitful life in Christ. In fact, two spirit-led actions that can give us assurance that we have eternal life. They are walk in the light and confess your sins. You see, first, as believers, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we must walk in the light. This is the opposite of the claim to be a believer and walk in darkness, which is a lie. And thus, they do not practice the truth. Walk in the light, not the darkness. So what does that mean? Remember that proclamation. God is light. God is truth. God is pure, morally perfect. So as believers, we are called to walk in that light. We're called to walk like him. We're called to pursue truth, to pursue purity, to seek after God. And we can seek after God in his word. You see, the word of God is our guide for both truth and purity. Psalm 119.105 puts it this way. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word guides us. His truth lights our way. It shows us the path of truth and purity. And John, in his gospel, he actually gives us an excellent picture of walking in the light. In John 8, 31 through 32, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, walking in the light, brothers and sisters, involves abiding in God's word. Spending time studying, spending time learning God's truth, and not just knowing and pursuing truth, but living it out as his disciples. Pursuing truth, purity, and holiness. You see, walking in the light involves walking the walk, not just talking the talk, as John refutes in verse 6. So the question this morning is, are you walking in the light? Are you pursuing truth from God's word to teach and to guide you? Are you pursuing obedience to that truth? To put it simply, are you reading the Bible and seeking to obey it? Now, we're all going to stumble. That's why God sent us a helper in the Holy Spirit. But when we stumble, we can get up and continue to walk in the light as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And John also tells us to confess our sins as God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, instead of claiming sinlessness, deceiving ourselves, rationalizing and hiding sin, making God a liar, as the church, we should be quick to confess our sins. You see, when we confess our sins, we're actually aligning with the truth. We're acknowledging God's truth. We're acknowledging our need for a Savior. We've all sinned, and that sin actually separates us from God. 
It breaks our fellowship with one another. It breaks our fellowship with God. And rightly, we deserve God's wrath. But beautiful words in the Bible, but God. See, God had a plan. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. The remediation. God, in his sovereign plan for God's glory, sent Jesus Christ alone to save us, to pay for our sin. And we're called to repent and believe. You see, we receive the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. And God is faithful. God is just, it says. It says God is faithful, and that means God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to save his people. And he's just because the penalty we deserve for those confessed sins has been paid for by the blood of Jesus, his son. Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That means Jesus took our unrighteousness. He took the sin, he took the lies, and he gives us his righteousness, his truth, his purity, by grace through faith in him. We need to confess our sins to God and to one another. Please don't show up to church and put on the cultural Christian mask. says everything is just fine. Instead, confess where you are struggling, where you're doubting, where you fall short. Confess your sins and pursue righteousness. Just agree with God that we need a Savior. Agree with God that you can't do it on your own. Agree with God that it is only the blood of Jesus that our sins can be forgiven. Confess your sins as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now remember, John is writing these things to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that they may know that they have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in the name of Christ, if you have repented in faith and turned to him, you can know this morning that you have eternal life. You can know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. If you're sitting there doubting this truth, John's giving us some markers to consider. Are you walking in the light? Are you confessing your sins? And if you're still unsure where you stand today, we need to remember the remediation. It is only, I repeat, only by the blood of Jesus Christ that your sins can be forgiven. It's a free gift. Repent and believe in Christ, and by God's grace through faith, you can walk in the light as he is in the light. And you can know that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses you from all sin. Let's be disciples of Jesus Christ. And by being disciples, we can make disciples of Jesus Christ. God is light, and as we're in the light, our light might shine to bring him glory. Let's pray.